0: Uh, well, good morning. It's great to be with you uh, this morning. Um, if I haven't met you before, my name is James um, and I am married to Sarah. We have two young daughters um, and I have the privilege of leading the Cotton site. Um, so who knows what's going on while I'm not there? Uh, we'll find out on Tuesday probably. Um, but it's a real joy to be with you this morning. And we're going to be starting a new teaching series In the book of Haggai uh, today, and we're going to be spending three weeks in Haggai, uh, and then there's going to be a couple of weeks break, and then we're going to be going into the book of Habakkuk. So we're just trying to tick off all the books that start with H, the minor prophets. That's the plan, Uh, and so we're going to be looking at the book of Haggai this morning. And just as Simon has said, you know, as we planned this series, we hadn't initially. I hadn't thought about the week that we were going to have when I was preparing and uh, speaking days after the death of Queen Elizabeth. In fact, last Sunday at the Cottom site, I preached from 2 Timothy chapter 4 about finishing well, about running the race, fighting the good fight, keeping the faith. And uh, it's worth saying today, isn't it, that the Queen was many things, uh, but first and foremost, she was a follower of Jesus And that can get lost, can't it, in a lot of what is being talked about in the media, that she was a follower of Jesus. She devoted her life to Christ. And at her first Christmas broadcast in 1952, she said these words, Pray for me that God may give me wisdom and strength to carry out the solemn promises I shall be making, and that I may faithfully serve him and you, all the days of my life. And every year since, she has testified and pointed to her deep faith in Jesus. She led an extraordinary life, a life which she didn't necessarily choose, but a life in which she served with great humility, compassion, strength, and following her great example, Jesus. And in the context of huge change, upheaval, she remained faithful to her vows. It's an extraordinary thing and remained faithful to her God. And it's that kind of devotion to God that I want to speak about today. And as we turn to our passage this morning, we'll find that the context in which Haggai is speaking into is also one of change and upheaval and uncertainty. The book of Haggai is set in the 5th century BC, that's 500 years before the coming of Christ, in which the Israelites, the people of God, had been miraculously released from captivity. Uh, Cyrus of Persia had overthrown the Babylonians uh, and uh, had decreed that the Israelites would return to their homeland and begin to rebuild the city of Jerusalem and the temple of God. They'd been in captivity for almost 70 years away from their homeland and now they find themselves released to go back home and to rebuild that human structure but in which God had chosen to inhabit. And as they return, what do they find? Well, they find that the city is in ruin. The temple has been raised to the ground. And so under the leadership of Of people like Ezra and Nehemiah, the reconstruction of the city walls and the city begins. But like any enthusiastic DIYer, there's that initial burst of enthusiasm where you know you've got to sort things out. And it's usually in the demolition process, you know, if you get rid of a wall, you just, that's the fun part. But when it comes to anything else, then after that, the energy levels begin to wane, don't they? We've got this TV unit which. Sarah keeps reminding me that I haven't painted properly. I told her, it's supposed to be shabby chic, Sarah. It's vintage. It's allowed to be like that. Uh, But there we go. And, And so under Ezra and Nehemiah, there's that initial enthusiasm. But then 14 years pass before the temple is touched again. 14 years. And Haggai who likely has remembered what the temple was like before, begins to speak to the people of God to remind them of what they've been called to. And so we're going to read the passage. Hopefully I've given you enough time now to try and find Haggai if you've got a paper Bible. Uh, And so we're going to start in chapter one and in verse one. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai, to Zerubbabel, son of Shelteel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Josedach, the high priest. This is what the Lord Almighty says These people say, The time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your panelled houses while this house remains a ruin? Now, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build my house. So that I may take pleasure in it and be honoured, says the Lord. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty? Because of my house, which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with your own house. Therefore, because of you the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops, I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the olive oil, and everything else the ground produces, on people and livestock, and all the labor of your hands. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Joshua, son of Josedach, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai, because the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord." Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message of the Lord to the people. I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shelteel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Josedach, the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. They came and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month. You might be wondering what a book like Haggai, which is dated two and a half thousand years ago, what that has to say to us today. There's not a temple to rebuild. We haven't lived under foreign rule or been exiled necessarily from our land. And yet there are what we might call resonances or parallels between what was going on with the people of God back then and what we're facing today. There are things that reverberate throughout history that help us to understand what we are experiencing. And the first thing to recognize in the passage is that even though the people of God had been allowed to return to their own land after 70 years of captivity, despite that initial enthusiasm, for the building project, what had been started had not been completed. And so it's worth asking the question, well, what went wrong? Something went wrong. What was it and why? And so those are the two questions we're going to ask ourselves today. What went wrong and why did it go wrong? And if you look at verse two with me, it tells us what went wrong. Just look at it with me. It says, This is what the Lord Almighty says. This is what God says. These people say, The time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. The time has not yet come. The presenting problem with the people of God was delay. It's delay. In verse 2, we see that God is quoting what the people have been saying all this time. It's not time to rebuild the house of God. And here we see the Lord God Almighty identifying the problem. And and notice in the text how God identifies them as these people. Not my people, these people. To demonstrate something of their disobedience to God. Delay is the issue here. A 14-year delay, in fact. Now, now there's often real wisdom, isn't there, in taking your time over important decisions. Uh, It's it's often one of the signs of immaturity, isn't it? A knee-jerk reaction to go and do something. It's not advised to follow the steps. We watch a lot of Frozen in our family. Uh, And it's not advised to follow the steps of Prince Hans to propose to a woman that he's just met that day. That's not advised. It's not advised to go and quit your job tomorrow and decide I'm going to go and be a missionary in Papua New Guinea without talking to anyone. It's probably not the wisest thing to do. Sometimes it's good to just maybe even sleep on a decision, isn't it? To come back to something if you're not sure or if you haven't heard from God about a particular thing. In fact, Jesus himself said, my time has not yet come. When he was talking about his crucifixion and his, his glorification, he would say that. And yet in this situation, God was identifying a procrastination or a delay which resulted in disobedience, resulted in the house of God laid in ruin. And that's the thing, isn't it? That very often when it comes To obedience to God, when it comes to following God, rarely is it a case of saying a flat out no. Sometimes that is the case, no. But more often, it's a yes, but not now. It's a yes, but not now. And that is a far easier trap to fall into. I wonder if you've ever said something along the lines of, I think God has called me to this. Or one day I'd love to do that, but I just need to get settled into a place and get my ducks in a row. Or I feel called to serve in this ministry, but life is just a bit manic right now and uh, I need to wait for everything just to calm down. Or I'd love to start giving financially to the church or to church ministry, but I just need to wait until I get that job promotion before I start. Or, you know, once I get married, I'll be able to do this. Or once I move house, I'll be able to do that. And on and on it goes. And we so often miss the opportunity to serve God in the situation we find ourselves in today. We miss the opportunity to live in obedience to God today. And we can all say the time has not yet come. And here in verse 2, God identifies the issue in the people of Israel that has displeased Him, which is that they had delayed in rebuilding the temple. They had delayed serving God. The very thing that they'd been released from captivity to do, they said to God, the time has not yet come. Do you see that? Do you see how that would displease Him? I've released you from captivity to do this thing, this thing that you've waited 70 years to do, and now you're saying not up for it right now maybe one day when i'm ready thanks god and so it leads to our second question that's what went wrong but the second question is well why why the delay why the procrastination what why has this happened and in the verses in verses 3 to 5 we see two reasons that explain this and the first is fear If you look at verses three to five of me, it says this. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your panelled houses while this house remains a ruin? Now, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. And what we're reading there is such was the fear amongst the people that it had become a a stronghold in their community. And the fear was that unless they controlled their own circumstances, there would be no safety or security. And in essence, they doubted the provision of God. You have planted much but harvested little, God said. You eat, but you remain hungry. You work, but your money seems to disappear. And in spite of their efforts to look after themselves, they are still experiencing a level of poverty. They remain in need. There is a dissatisfaction in the people of God. They are left wanting. And God is drawing their attention to this and saying, have you thought about why this might be happening to you? Why you keep sowing and nothing is being reaped? We can be quite disparaging, can't we, when we read passages like this. Why are these people so stupid? Have you I can't be the only person who thinks that. You Read the disciples. I know you've thought these disciples are numpties. And, and you can read a text like this, how could they be so stupid? Don't they remember all the times that God had provided for them? The miraculous exodus from Egypt, manna on the ground in the desert, enemy armies being stopped in their tracks, and even in their memory being released from captivity from Babylon. Do they not understand that God has always provided for them and will always provide for them? The thing is about these people was that probably two-thirds of them had been born and grown up in Babylon. That many of them had never experienced for themselves the provision of God before. They had not seen the power of God like other generations. They hadn't experienced what it was to wholly trust in God. And now back in their homeland... Surrounded by desolation and fear. Well, that fear had led to doubt. Doubt had led to insecurity. And insecurity led to taking matters into their own hands. Rather than following the hand of God. I can hear the buzzing. It's not me. Oh, there we go. I'll carry on. Um... Fear led to doubt. Doubt led to insecurity. And insecurity led to taking matters into their own own hands. They wanted to control their own situation. I wonder if you can recognize that in yourself, that when you fear, your natural instinct is to want to control the situation, to take matters into your own hands. And in doing so, we can sideline God. We can sideline what God is calling us to because there is a fear that God won't provide what we think we need. And what does God say? Give careful thought to your ways. Consider your ways. And so fear had gripped the Israelites so that rather than rebuilding the temple, they concerned themselves with their own survival. But here's the second reason why people had not rebuilt the temple And the second thing is because of a self-love, a self-love. Look at verse four with me. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your panelled houses while this house remains a ruin? In verse nine, it's repeated. Because of my house, which remains a ruin while each of you is busy with your own house. The fear that God wouldn't provide or the fear that, that had driven the people to look after themselves, was ultimately rooted in a self-love. And I don't mean the kind of self-love that we talk about when it comes to having a low self-esteem. I mean the kind of self-love in which we make ourselves the God that we worship. I wonder if you noticed the challenge that is being made here. It's not necessarily an attack on wealth. It's not an attack on wood-panelled houses. If if you're into that, you crack on. The issue here is that the temple of God was in ruin while the people invested in their well-manicured houses. It's the issue that the, the temple of God has not been touched. Meanwhile, at the very same time, the people are building temples now to themselves. And it's a question of worship, isn't it? It's a question of worship. Where do your priorities lie? It's a question of what do you give yourselves to first? You see, throughout the scriptures, there was a principle in which the people of God gave what was known as their first fruits as part of their worship. So. Imagine you have some land uh, and uh, you grow grapes. When it's time to harvest grapes, whatever time that year is, I don't don't know. Uh, But when it's time to harvest those grapes, what was taught in the Scriptures was you'd give that first harvest to the priest as an offering, a worship offering to God. And it was a demonstration of, of what came first in your life. You would give that to God. In fact, then your family or whoever you were providing would have to wait for that next round of harvest. It came at a cost. And it was, it was that demonstration of worship. And the rebuilding of the temple, the, the dwelling place of God, was not supposed to be an afterthought or a, well, I've got a bit of time at the end, or uh, I've got this little bit of extra money I can give. Or I might be able to squeeze it in here. It was the thing that they gave themselves to first. Worship is not just 20 minutes on a Sunday morning. It's to be our whole lives. It's our first fruits that we give to the Lord. And the people had forgotten that. What did Jesus say in the New Testament? He said, Do not worry saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. We live in a culture that champions the building of temples to ourselves. That calls us crazy if we live for something other than that. We live in a world that is centred around making our lives better, about possessions and materialism, living that beautiful Instagram life. And God says, be careful. Consider your ways. Are you so obsessed with what you are building that you've forgotten to give your first fruits to God? You've forgotten to commit yourself to God first. If such a thing should stop us in our tracks, it broke God's heart. To see that the place where his presence has once dwelt, the place that the, he had led the people of God to, to build and to sacrifice and to build the temple, the, people where, the place where people would come and worship him, is now left in ruin. And in their place, they're just bothered about themselves. And the warning is, is that this self-love eventually leads to self-destruction. In fact, it's what we read in in verses seven and eight. And Haggai is speaking into this dire context, and with the help of God, is desperately trying to save them from their own ways and judgment that will come from God. And, and he calls them to do three things. The first is to think. We've already read it multiple times. In verses five and seven, he says, consider your ways, think about what you're doing. I don't think Haggai was particularly gentle. In fact, the prophets weren't necessarily the person you go down the pub with for a nice friendly drink. It's like they're, they're grabbing your attention and saying, consider your ways. What are you living for? Are you aware of what you're doing? And I wonder whether we should all take stock and consider our ways. Can we truly say that the first fruits of our life, of our time, our money, our energy, our thought life, is really going to God's first? Does your life demonstrate your belief that God is real and that he will provide for you? Consider your ways, Haggai says. Think. The second thing that Haggai calls the people to do is to act. In verse 8, he says, Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build my house. Bring the wood And build my house, said God. There is an action to be done. There is something to do. Go, bring, and build. There is no more time for delay. There is no more excuses. You know what you need to do now. It's interesting language, isn't it? Because there are some parallels to what Jesus said in Matthew 28, isn't there? Go and make disciples of all nations. Bring them to myself. Can you see the parallels Of that, go and build. Go and build my kingdom. Go and build my temple. There is something to do. And then the third thing is to expect. The second half of verse 8 says this, so that I may take pleasure in it and be honoured. There is an anticipation and an expectation that as the temple was being built, that God would take pleasure in it. That he would be honoured and that his presence would be with his People think, act, expect, and the remarkable thing is. And if you know, if you've read any of the minor prophets before, what you'll find is, is that the people tend to reject God and reject what the prophet says. But in this instance, the people listen, the people turn from their rebellion, their rejection of God, their apathy towards Him. And they start to build. The Spirit comes and fills the people. And they all put their hands to it. And there's that wonderful promise in verse 13. I am with you, says the Lord. Something else that we hear the Lord Jesus say, wasn't it? When he gave the great commission, he then said, and surely I will be with you always until the very end Of the age. What's interesting is is that Jesus was actually a a direct descendant of Zerubbabel. He was in the line, he was in the Davidic line. And Jesus, when he was born, it was in him that the fullness of God would dwell, who would live a perfect life of devotion and worship to his Father. In the face of temptation and suffering he would give his first fruits to his Father. He would give his life to him and to us. He took the judgment on the cross in order that those who have put their faith in Jesus would not die because of their sin or their rebellion or their apathy or their delay or their disobedience but he would reconcile us to God, Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies and promises that God would no longer dwell in a temple. But rather by his spirit, we, the church, would now be the dwelling place of God. That's why we don't, after this service, have to go and build a building somewhere. But what is it Paul write in Ephesians? He says, his intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus. Friends, that is what the church is about. Displaying the glory of God to those around us. That's why we love the Queen, isn't it? Because every year she pointed to the faithfulness of God to her and pointed her to what our lives should be about, which is to worship him. And so I'd love, us, I'd love to invite you to respond. And there's two things. The first is, there is that challenge, isn't there? Of Are you living a life that is centered around Jesus and living in obedience to him? Or, or do you have that sense of delay? Do you know deep in your heart, I have delayed on some things. I have put some things off. And perhaps this morning you want to recommit your life to him and say, Lord, I I give you the first fruits of my life again. Perhaps you'd like to respond in that way. You might want to think about that and then act and do something about it. I think that's the instruction here, isn't it? To think and then act and then to expect that God would take great pleasure in your worship. The second thing is that if you're not a Christian here this morning, perhaps someone's invited you here. Perhaps you've just walked in uh, today. I want to invite you to take a step into the great story that God is writing. It's this incredible redemptive story that started millennia ago. And yet we still have the opportunity to be part of that today. And you can... Make a decision to follow Jesus today and be part of the people of God. To find purpose and meaning that's far bigger than yourself. And unlike the people of God here when they were harvesting and not receiving anything, you can come to Jesus who will satisfy every desire and every need that you could possibly want. That's the Jesus that we serve. Why don't we stand? We're going to worship and I'm going to pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice. We thank you for your example to us, that you withheld nothing, that you didn't hold anything back, but you gave yourself unto death, that your body was broken for us, that your blood was shed for us. And now we stand in the goodness of that. Lord, we thank you that we don't have to try and find you or grasp out to get you. But Lord, you promise that as we gather together as a church family, your presence is with us. And so Lord, I want to pray that you would continue to build your church. Here in Bradley Stoke, in Cotton and in Fishponds, right across this city, We ask, Lord, would you help us to continue to serve you with everything that we have? In Jesus' name, Amen.